This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Dr. Guilt, Benefits of Medical Treatment Compared with Hazards, a Trade-Off. And the author is Dr. Everett Lovrien. And Dr. Lovrien joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, doctor. Good morning. I want to read a couple of things that you've written about your book. You say this, doctors gave intravenous medicine to young persons to treat recurrent painful bleeding, and unknowingly the medicine was contaminated with HIV and resulted in death from AIDS, a fate worse than the condition they were treating. You also say this, the benefits of medical treatment must be compared with the hazards. The impact of treatment is not always obvious. Doctors intend no harm to their patients. If harm occurs, are the doctors guilty of causing harm, even if they were unaware of the unsuspecting hazards of treatment? Obviously, these are very uh, sobering statements, questions. Uh, This is a very kind of an issue that I guess doctors confront much more than we think about as patients because you're always just trying to, for the most part, do the best for the patient. But this is an issue that obviously you felt very motivated to write in detail about this issue. Uh, Is is that what uh, stirred within you, doctor? Yes, it is. I uh, felt very uh, wrong uh, as far as the results of my treatment for these patients because uh, the treatment led to a disaster rather than success. And these were innocent patients, uh, and I did the best I could with the knowledge that I have, but it wasn't good enough, and therefore I caused harm, and I felt I had bad dreams about this. I dreamt about the patients afterwards. I got very attached to these people over the years that I treated them, and so I felt I owed them an apology and that their story should be heard, and that's the purpose of this book. Now, did it all start with a young boy named Brent? This book begins with a young boy named Brent. I, I knew him from the time he was about six or nine months of age until the day he died. I was his doctor, and so I, he's a central figure in the story about his life with hemophilia and how he died from AIDS as a result of the treatment. And then the other stories of other persons in the book are people that he met in the clinic or at the hemophilia summer camp who had similar fates that he did. We want to point out to all our listeners that uh, this is not a, a textbook or some kind of medical compendium. It's, it's meant for the average reader, right, Doctor? 
Yes, it is. It's not written for doctors or scientists. It's written so that the general person will be aware of the issues that are involved and the great tragedy that occurred, although they... Most patients, uh, most persons don't know anyone with hemophilia. They should care about them because it affects a, a portion of our society. You write, persons affected by medical disorders are confronted with the risks of their treatment. Now, how are they presented those risks? Is that just mandatory procedure by uh, medical professionals? Uh, well, it, it is mandatory, but also we usually personalize it and try to have the uh, recipient involved in the decision-making because all treatments involve hazards, not just benefits, and they need to weigh this. They need to balance what is the advantage versus the disadvantage, and sometimes the disadvantage is su- su- superior or supreme to the advantages, and that's what happened here. So back when you gave this medical treatment for hemophilia to Brent, when he was just, uh, what was he again, uh, just nine months old? Yeah, an an infant, yes. An infant. So the parents uh, felt, uh, felt comfortable with this kind of treatment. Oh, yes. We thought the treatment was a miracle uh, because before that, the patients who had hemophilia suffered immensely, bleeding into your body, into your tissues, your knees, your elbows, and even into your brain is all very painful and resulted in days of agony and suffering and then disability. And this new medicine was a miracle medicine which allowed them to overcome this hazard. So at first, the treatment seemed to work. Oh, yes. Well, the treatment worked very well. Yes, it did. It it did what it was designed to do to relieve suffering. But obviously, no one knew, and you feel you should have known? Well, uh, I feel that we should have known that there might be something in the, the... This medicine was made from human blood. It's made from the plasma of paid donors. And that should have been a trigger to us that there's a risk involved uh, because it's been known since World War II that plasma has a risk of hepatitis and that that should have been deleted from the medicine that was used to make... From the, from the plasma that was used to make this medicine. The uh, pharmaceutical manufacturers said they didn't know how to delete it, but that's, that is true, they didn't, but it was known, but we didn't know that, and that's why I'm saying we should have known that, because it was warned that plasma should be purified before it's given to humans. And there was no doubt that uh, Brent, at the age of 17, died from AIDS? After this, no, these, these uh, years of treatment? There's no question about that. Yes, he died of AIDS. And it was directly related to the uh, medical treatment? Absolutely. So how, how do you deal with this, doctor? How, how did the, first of all, how did the family deal with it? Well, they they dealt with it very, very well. I'm just amazed at their courage. They accepted this, and they were at his bedside, of course, while he was died. The other, the other thing dealing with it is that Brent, 
here's this, a boy when he was 16 knew that he was going to die and so how does how does a young person face this dilemma and he accepted that as the other persons also did they they had a lot of courage they discovered their meaning of life and they accepted it they simply didn't want to die in the hospital they wanted to die at home in peace how did you deal with it at that moment when you uh, you know you knew that he was going to die from your treatment well, I was very sad. I felt that that was devastating, and and I felt sorry for him, compassionate for the family, and I felt that I failed as a physician to provide him a, not just a relief but a long life, which I thought, which we had told him before, take this medicine and you'll have a good life and you'll live to be an old man, and that was incorrect. Of course, we all want to trust our doctors. I mean, we're, we're in the hands of the doctors when, when we have kinds of illnesses and, and uh, medical conditions that are beyond our understanding. So we have to completely rely on doctors like you. That's correct, and and the doctors do their best, and they use the most uh, current knowledge available. They are trying very hard to relieve suffering, and the doctors are very worthy of their trust. But sometimes, the, and there there are there are different examples in medical history where doctors have been wrong. This is not the first uh, example. So for the for the reader for the listener. Uh, what do we do? Uh, how do we... It uh, sounds like we just need to ask lots of questions. We need to be capable of critical thinking, and that's what this book is intended to do. One of the big issues here is in our um, society in America, we have uh, free marketing and we're driven by capitalism. And so this medicine was made by pharmaceutical manufacturers, and the medicine was a miracle medicine. It did a lot of good. But the patients who died, their families believe that the pharmaceutical manufacturers sacrificed safety for profitability. That is, they could have devoted more energy into safety measures rather than into marketing, and this whole tragedy could have been avoided. If they would have knocked out hepatitis virus, as it was suggested many years ago, they would have also eliminated HIV, even though HIV wasn't known, but the same treatment would have eliminated both of them. Is this uh, medical treatment still available today in a safe form? Yes, it is. Nowadays, uh, the uh, people who need uh, clotting factor replacement use a medicine made by recombinant uh, genetic technology, genetic engineering, and there's no human products involved in it. Did the family sue? No. There was a... There was a uh, uh, you mean the, the the one Brent family? Right. Did they sue you or the uh, the pharmaceutical company? No, but there was a class action suit in America, and uh, they they were awarded uh, compensation. Uh, all the uh, people who uh, became HIV infected then benefited from this class action suit. They didn't individually sue me. No. How does a doctor uh, move on when you have something as so obviously uh, 
of shattering for both the family and for the doctor because as you say you get very close to your patient so how do you how do you move on from something like this doctor we discuss it and we have a conversation back and forth and with the family and with uh, surviving people uh, we're all humans and we have to understand their feelings uh, we don't want them to feel that they've been abandoned uh, and by conversation and mutual understanding this can usually be worked out where uh, it's, it's more satisfying than just walking away from it Medical advances are coming about all the time. It seems like the uh, the TV now these days are filled with all kinds of commercials uh, about different kinds of uh, new uh, drugs, and we're encouraged to, you know, ask our doctor. Uh, you know, it's certainly like you say, it's a capitalistic enterprise, and often there's greed involved. Uh, I, I'm not quite sure. When you talk to someone like you that has gone through such a painful experience and also, of course, this family devastating experience, uh, what do we do with all that? How do do we deal with this uh, capitalistic side of medicine? Well, this is uh, one of the issues. We we capitalism uh, is leads to entrepreneurship and the development of new drugs. For instance, uh, people who have diabetes take insulin now. The insulin is no longer made from the pancreases of pigs. It's made by genetic engineering, and this is true development in America. That is the uh, ins- genetically synthesized insulin and clotting factors wasn't invented in other countries. It was invented in America. And the reason is because of capitalism. That is, if, there, if, if, if the uh, new recombinant medicines were invented in another country, uh, in, in third world, the manufacturer wouldn't get the money, the government would. Instead, here we have free enterprise, free marketing, so there's a great drive, and that's a great benefit to our society, but because of human nature, you have to have government regulations because people are guilty of greed sometimes, and that's what happened here. This is a multi-billion dollar business making clotting factors for hemophilia, and it's been a very good thing for all the world, and unfortunately this event clouded it, and it could have been prevented. So we, we in America, we don't have cost controls on pharmaceutical products like in other countries, and therefore people can charge anything they want. They can advertise on the television. This has to be corrected, and that's one of the purposes of the book is to get people to be critically thinking of this process. So the whole process has to be done with a lot of in-depth thinking, asking questions, and getting all kinds of different opinions before a treatment is okayed. Absolutely. Uh, some of the some of the uh, families who survived this um, terrible situation believe that there was too much closeness between the pharmaceutical manufacturers as the people who made the medicine and the doctors. And that closeness was in the form of paying for research grants, paying for studies, for for instance taking a trip on a on a ship for postgraduate education. Those types of favors then influence the doctors. 
so that the, the, the manufacturers were in competition with other manufacturers, and this then swayed the doctors, and they feel that was too close. And that's one of the reasons that one of the agencies that was sued was the National Hemophilia Foundation, because the, the, the foundation was funded by pharmaceutical money, and therefore that influenced the the foundation and they should have had a more of a, a demanding request for safety instead of marketing. Doctor, uh, we have just about 30 seconds left. Uh, what was the most challenging part of writing your book? Uh, the most challenging part was uh, actually making sure that I was speaking the voice of the patients, not my voice. This book isn't about me, it's about those people who died. Tell us how to get your book. Uh, the, the books are available either from the publisher, iUniverse, or they're also listed on Amazon.com, Barnes & Noble, and Borders. Well, Doctor, we appreciate you being on this edition of iUniverse Radio. Thank you. Thank you very much. I enjoyed it. Bye, that, bye Steve. Bye-bye. That was Dr. Everett Loverian, and he is the author of his book, Dr. Guilt, Benefits of Medical Treatment Compared with Hazards, a Trade-Off. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Get ready for the Not-So-Soccer Mom, Tuesday afternoons at 1 Eastern, noon Central, on Toginet with Jill Hickey. You name it, from politics to pop culture to Jill's search for the perfect bronzer and chicken salad. The Not-So-Soccer Mom will weigh in on it all. The sentence, I have no opinion about that, is one that Jill has never uttered. In the early 90s, Jill finally decided to put her thoughts, opinions, mom advice, love of pop culture, hummus, and Starbucks, working out, cosmetic shopping, and politics into an actual website, and thus, NotSoSoccerMom.com was born. Shortly after her fourth child, a boy, Jerome, now she's really got tons of topics to share with you. This is Laugh Out Loud Funny, and we're not kidding. What's a loud Nebraska girl who lived in Little Rock for many years and now is up in the Northeast doing, chronicling her opinions on everything? The wheels aren't off yet, but it's close. It's the Not-So-Soccer Bomb with Jill Hickey, Tuesday afternoons at 1 Eastern, noon Central on toginet.com. Innovation and insight, problems and solutions, capitalizing on your ideas and efforts. That's all a part of Changing the World One Invention at a Time with Rick Rowe. Thursday evenings at 6, 5 Central on toginet.com. Rick will be sharing stories of innovation, invention, inspiration, and overcoming obstacles with guests who have been there, done that, and are doing that. Rick will be asking the right questions helping you identify the real problems and showing you how to act on your ideas by increasing consumer confidence and, more importantly, increasing your confidence to act on your ideas. For even more information, go to thinktech, that's T-E-K, globally.com. Then join us as Rick and his guest teach us how to develop new ideas and create new products, new businesses, new jobs. And together, let's get our economy growing again. It's changing the world one invention at a time with author and inventor Rick Rowe. Thursday evenings at 6, 5 central on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, To Get Back Home, A Mysterious Disease, A Fight for Life. And the author is Wendy Chapin Ford. And Wendy joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Wendy. 
Hi, Steve. Thanks for having me today. Well, we're really uh, thrilled to have you with us. This is an amazing story, uh, your story, and I want to read what you have written about your book. You say this. This is a true medical thriller. One day I was active, healthy wife and mother, then within a week's time stricken with a rare neurological disorder, comatose and quadriplegic in a world-class hospital where my doctors, Harvard Medical School professors, all were helpless to diagnose and treat me. Well, obviously, it may be a rare uh, disorder and even deadly, but you beat all the odds. You're with us. And this must have been quite an experience writing this book. What motivated you, Wendy? Well, after my miraculous recovery, um, people were very curious about what had happened. I was curious to, to learn about the lost chapter of my life, the time that I was sick at Beth Israel in, in Boston. Um, I'll never be able to remember. And I wanted to piece it all together, mainly for my children, because they were very young at the time uh, this happened. My daughter was three and my son was seven. Uh, and I was away from them for a very long period of time, the first part of which I don't remember at all. And the second part, I was struggling to to get my life back, um, wondering if I would ever be able to, you know, be a mother again uh, to them. And that was probably one of the worst times in my life, uh, remembering when I was away from my family, my great husband and wonderful children, um, for so long, you know, wondering if I would ever get back. Well, this story has a happy ending, but it's a very bittersweet one. We'll talk about that in a little bit. But first of all, let us go back. Let us go back to Saturday, May 16th, 1998. And you woke up and you just felt ill. You probably, at that moment in time, you thought you had the flu? Exactly. My husband and I thought it was the flu. And I spent the weekend in bed resting while uh, Bruce, or BG as I always called him, um, took the kids out for a long walk. And um, I spent the entire weekend resting, except for the time that I drove myself to the hospital, uh, the local hospital, to get some medicine because I felt so poorly, apparently. But I don't remember. I don't remember anything between May 16th and June Eight, which was my last full day at Beth Israel Hospital. So that Saturday, you felt awful. Up to that moment, healthy, you know, normal, athletic, no problems, right? Absolutely. I had a wonderful life. I was athletic and active and two young children to chase around. Sure, <laughs> sure. But by Sunday evening, that weekend, you say I was confused and on the verge of delirium. Well, I, apparently, uh, again, I, this is all secondhand information from my husband. Um, I was, I was saying things that didn't make sense. I, I was very um, drowsy and lethargic, and um, and then by Monday morning, um, he decided that I should go to the hospital. Because once again, I was, you know, uh, making saying things that didn't make sense, and um, and that, that's when we discovered that I couldn't walk. By Monday morning, you can't walk. That's right. Now, 
the doctors, they, they really didn't know what was going on for some time, right? No, they didn't. We started off at the, at the excellent local hospital in, in the town where we live, north of Boston. But very, very soon they uh, realized that it was um, something that uh, had to be uh, treated in Boston. They were, they were very good about saying that I should get down to Boston. And to the, so to the Harvard Medical School, right? Down to we, the Harvard Medical Facility. Yes, we went to uh, the Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in, in Boston, which is a Harvard teaching hospital. Um, without hesitation, we'd all, always received our care there. Um, our, our children had been born there, so that's where we went. And it's a good thing we did, because they never gave up on me. So the doctors didn't expect you would make it? No, they didn't, because what I had was apparently so rare that uh, it was difficult to treat and diagnose. Well, I should say it was difficult to diagnose and therefore treat um, because the uh, doctor who headed my team, Dr. Thomas Scammell, uh, suspected it was uh, what it ended up being diagnosed, um, acute demyelinating encephalomyelitis, or what they call ADEM for short, A-D-E-M, um, but it wasn't behaving the way ADEM usually does because all of my MRIs were coming back normal. But Dr. Scammell never gave up on me. He just kept carting me out for MRIs um, when everyone else thought it was encephalitis, apparently, um, which is nearly almost, almost always fatal. And uh, I guess they just get to a point where they toss their hands in the air and decide they can't do any more for someone who has it. But Dr. Scammell refused to give up on me. So on about the fourth MRI, they found the lesions on my brain that indicated it was an inflammatory illness and that they could treat it with steroids. And the steroids don't always work uh, in, in some cases, um, uh, but in my case, fortunately, they did because I'm talking to you today. <laughs> but uh, yeah, you sound completely normal. Disorder. I mean, you you never know that you went through all that listening to you. Oh well, fooled another one. <laughs> yeah, fooled another I, one. <laughs> I have uh, I do have short term memory issues, and I have dysphagia, which is word retrieval issues. Um, but I'm a very, I consider myself to be a very fortunate person. So by what, uh, what date? By June? By, and six weeks later, the miracle occurred. The, well, the mir- well, the first miracle was that I came out of the coma. Okay, that was the first miracle. You came out of the coma, and by the end of six weeks, near six weeks, you walked out of the hospital. That's right. I walked out of Spalding Rehab in just a day under six weeks. Um, when originally they thought uh, that I might remain quadriplegic indefinitely because, again, because it was such a rare disorder, they couldn't reliably prognosticate. But, uh, and they still can't explain why I got better. There are two mysteries that, that persist to this day, what caused this and why I got better. Um, but you have to read the book to find out my theories about the, that. <laughs> um, well, well, I can tell you that the reason I walked out of Spalding, that I worked so hard to get out of there, is because my children were so young. And I, uh, I just, I had to get back home. 
which is how the title of the book came about. When you get when you get to rehab, they ask you what your goals are, and for me, it was as automatic as breathing. I just said I had to get back home. So you were willing to do anything, obviously, whatever it took, right? Well, anything that I possibly could do. I knew that I had a lot of work to do, and I I knew that um, I had to keep progressing. Somehow or other, I figured out when I was at Spalding that if you stop progressing in a rehab hospital, they can't really do anything more for you, and you, you go to another type of place. So in order for them to keep working on me, I knew that I had to keep making progress. So I just did everything that I could think of to get better in terms of, you know, physical therapy. Uh, when they brought me back to my room, for example, for from, from physical therapy, well, I kept doing physical therapy in my room. <laughs> I just had to keep moving and wiggling any little tiny part of my body that I possibly could and at the, at the beginning. It wasn't a whole lot because I was quadriplegic. Well, this is the great equalizer, as you call it, of something like this. In this case, this disease uh, was like getting a two-by-four in the face. But at the same time, even though you got knocked down completely, a whole lot of things occurred within you. Obviously, a, a whole new view of yourself, of life, your children, your husband. Tell us about your feelings. Well, I never thought I took life for granted before my illness uh, and recovery, and I certainly don't now. I, I, I've said I've I've said before that um, while I never would have signed up for this, I definitely feel as though I'm a better, a richer person for it for having gone through it. And um, I'm just I'm just so incredibly grateful that. I had whatever I needed to get myself out of that trouble. Uh, and I couldn't have done it without, without all of the wonderful people around me. My husband, first of all, Bruce, uh, was just incredible. He, you know, he would go in every day to the hospital to try and help the doctors figure out what was going on, how, how to treat me, how to, how to help them diagnose it, perhaps. Um, doing research, and then he would come home at the end of the day and put on a happy face for our two young children, whom he couldn't even tell that I would be coming home because he knew he had to be truthful with them. So uh, Bruce was amazing. Um, my my elderly mother came in from Michigan right away. She was incredible. She was 77 years old at the time, and um, traveled in with Bruce every day and, and just held my hand basically while I was in the coma. Um, there were a couple of, there were a few other people who sat with me in the coma, friends, close friends and, and family. Um, Bruce had arranged with the doctors to, to have them in, you know, and they don't like a lot of people to come in through the ICU, but, um, they agreed that perhaps um, you know some familiar faces might trigger something in me, and so I had coma sitters <laughs> come in and just kind of talk at me, you know, hoping to get through, reminiscing and such. Um, 
and my my children were were the main focus of my of my uh, return. I just I had to get back home to them. But the uh, the medical people at Beth Israel and Spalding were 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 just incredible. I really felt at some point and at some level that that I was loved and and that my family was loved. There was just uh, such an amazing uh, uh, level of care, the most exquisite, compassionate, intelligent care at both hospitals. Um, it's just phenomenal, and that's that's another big reason for me to to write the book is that I just I had this amazing care, and I I think I just wanted people to understand what happens in those places, um, I, and I also want to say that this story is not just about me; it's it's about everyone around me who worked so hard to help me get better. Now, just the, the the time we have left, there is an epilogue to this story, and you've put it in the end of your book, uh, this bittersweet part of this great happy ending. I don't even think we can call it bittersweet. It, it uh, is so emotionally challenging because two years ago, tell us what happened to Bruce, your husband. Uh, well, um, two years ago, I lost Bruce to a deadly cancer. So I'm just um, making my way. Uh, I, I think I'm doing pretty well considering everything. The kids are doing great, and I, that's my main mission. If my, if my kids are doing great, then I'm doing great. So, and they're doing great. <laughs> so, um, and again, everyone around us during Bruce's illness uh, two and three years ago um, made it all bearable in the end steve it's all about the people around you i think that's that's a big lesson to learn for those of us who need reminding and i just i through both uh, uh, sieges i had the most amazing um support from family friends and our wonderful medical people you know, just a, a phrase from a poem that most people know, no man is an island, no man stands alone. You certainly have lived that in its fullness and realized the depth of that that you probably never realized before. That's true. That's true. It's um, uh, there, there are certain situations in which we have to you know, accept help from people. We might be used to giving help to others, but there are certain situations when we really need other people. And and if you're as fortunate as, as we've been, as my husband and I and, and our family has been, you have those people. And and so I, despite it all, I really still feel as though I've been a very fortunate human being. Wendy, tell us how to get your book. Oh, well, uh, my book may be ordered online uh, from the publisher, from uh, Amazon or BarnesandNoble.com, or if you have a favorite local bookseller, uh, all of the independent booksellers uh, can access it from their wholesalers. They all have the file of the book. 
um, until it becomes a New York Times bestseller, they won't be able to just see it at a big bookstore in a mall because I'm an unknown. But <laughs> Everyone uh, but can order the book. Anyone can order the book. Exactly. Well, we appreciate you so much for being with us and sharing this just incredible journey and twists and turns that most people would never imagine. Uh, congratulations, Wendy. Well, thank you, Steve, and, and thanks for having me on the show. That was Wendy Chapin Ford. She is the author of her book, To Get Back Home, A Mysterious Disease, A Fight for Life. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Hi, everybody. This is Pete Dix of Beatles and Beyond. Why don't we all come together and hear some of the tracks off the latest Beatles release on this radio station. Why don't you look up the schedules on this radio station and join me and Beatles listeners everywhere to hear the latest releases from the Beatles on Beatles and Beyond with Pete Dix. Girlfriended is on Togginet. Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central, with your hosts Patty Wyatt and Lisa Jernigan. This show is your chance to share, learn, laugh, and connect with other women. The girlfriended principle was born out of loss. Lisa had recently had her mother pass away from cancer, and my mom um, was murdered. A man just walking into a room and started a 23-second shooting spree. I think one of the things we both realized going through those tragedies is that you can be extremely okay and be extremely sad. Check out girlfriended.com and then be a part of Girlfriended, the radio show, Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central. You know, your boyfriend or, or your husband or whatever, they don't totally understand that emotional side to a woman like another woman does. And I think that's so important just to have mm-hmm. somebody that you go, she gets me. Check out the website, girlfriended.com. Don't miss Girlfriended with Patty Wyatt and Lisa Jernigan, Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, A Nation of Haters and Victims, or A Nation of Thinkers, Hopers, and Doers. And the author is Dr. Ruth Todd, and Dr. Todd joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Ruth. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Well, this title basically sums up the book. We're talking about uh, your feelings about a lot of uh, hate language and a lot of people feeling like victims. And, and yet on the other side of it, if we're going to really, I guess, address problems, we got to think and we got to have hope and then we've got to go to work. Uh, let me just read a couple things that you have written. Uh, you say, The United States is a unique country. It was founded by those who wanted to escape state-sponsored religions and political oppression. 
This seemed to work for many years, but recently there has been a blight affecting many in this country. In the last two decades, there has seemed to be a rush to judgment. Now is the time to take stock of who we are and who we want to be and to make sure that we are more akin to the thinkers than the haters. There's certainly a big difference, isn't there, between the thinker and the hater. Uh, Seems like the hater is more just pure emotion and the thinker is dealing with facts. That that is true. The the problem is, is that the haters are not necessarily aware that they're not thinking they, they begin to hate because of a fear or a concern or that somebody's getting something they're not getting, uh, that there's a, you know, a favoritism, you know, that we, there's, you know, inequality. So many things feed into that hatred, but it starts usually with somebody's different, and I don't like different because, and it generally doesn't follow that they don't like different because they know them. It's generally because they don't know them and they don't want to because other people have told them, you know, something about those people, whoever those people are. And those two words, by the way, are just terrible. Every time you hear the words those people, you just know there's nothing good coming out of that sentence, right? <laughs> and, so, right. and so what happens is, is that the the... The people can be victims, and they can grow to be haters, or they can be haters, and then they know they're victims, and then they want to strike back. They don't always know who to strike back at, but they pick a cause, and the cause is nowadays anything that, you know, some media mouth um, tells them, you know, be afraid of immigrants, be afraid of Arabs, be afraid of Muslims, be afraid of... uh, Anybody, you know, anybody from anywhere that isn't just like you. And I think if people would just look at that, there isn't hardly anybody that looks just like me. You've been... Right? That's my age, my, you know, that. so when they go through this, the, the thought process isn't be afraid of somebody who's different. The thought process ought to be everybody's different. <laughs> Why do you think you've been criticized by some for writing your book? Well, yeah. Uh, there's, a, there's several reasons. One was, uh, wasn't so much a criticism as a, a big concern, right? Is, Ruth, you know, if you start down this path, you know, you're attacking, you know, people who breed fear and the media and, you know, you're telling people, go back and, and think for yourselves. And nowadays that's not necessarily a popular topic. You know, NPR has aired this thing about the politics of anger and somebody else talks about the politics of hate and, and uh, you know, and certainly our current political climate has fed that discord, right? You know, everybody's a label, red state, blue state, you know, Democrat, liberal, uh, Republican, conservative, fanatic, right? We, we put labels on everybody and everything. And so the first part was just a concern that I was challenging that and that was dangerous. And just the fact that they thought it was dangerous made me want to do it more, not because I'm, I'm you know, that risk-taking kind of person, but if voicing a contrary opinion is becoming dangerous, then somebody needs to do it. And then, of course, the other part of that was that in a, a state like Georgia, which has been very Republican, if you just want to do it on a political basis for a long time, the idea is, is 
you can't challenge this. You know, these these news stations are right. This person is right. You know, they they're telling people what they need to know. And and I've listened to some of those things that people have told me, and I said, well, they're telling them something they need to know. The problem is the way they say it, the words they use, the vocabulary they use, the inflections that they use, you know, all the rhetoric and 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 that that they put into it, they're changing the facts. And it's like everything has to have a spin. You know, I was uh, I was remarking to somebody that I don't know if Carl Rove wrote a book yet, but uh, about how you change ordinary words into spin. But I bet you it would be great reading. And I don't you know, fault him for being good at what he did. But there's lessons in that spin that goes on that might be lost on ordinary people, or it is lost on ordinary people who don't engage in those kind of um, dialogues all the time. And so the criticism came from, oh, you're wrong, we really don't have victims and haters, and, you know, we're right on the other side, and you just need to join us because we're right. And just the idea that you can't have a discourse without um, being concerned that people are going to attack you now. A lot of people get their information from television, TV news, and and other uh, shows, commentary shows. And, of course, not only is there a lot of opinion, there's just these short, you know, 15-second, 30-second, 45-second sound bites. So that poses a big problem. It does, and and this is the the beauty of the technology, and also the dangers of it. Is you know when uh, and going back to uh, I can't even think of his name. You know Walter Cronkite in his early days. You know the most trusted man in journalism. Um, he never had a soundbite in the early days, right? Everything he wrote was a you know the op-ed pieces and the the longer explanations of things. But he didn't tell people what to think. He told people what happened. Embedded in all these sound bites is not just this thing happened, but it happened this way, and they're doing it with language, right? Language has become the 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 weapon in this. Is how you how you phrase something, the words you use. What's the difference between being working poor and welfare? You know, and, and both of them can be used. But how do people feel when they hear, oh, they're on welfare or these are working poor? Oh, well, at least they're working, right? The, the, just the adjectives that are used, the expressions that are used. But, but most importantly, when, when someone in the national media says, I want our president to fail, I believe that what they've just said is they want our country to fail. Because the president is the representative to the world for all of us. And if they want the president to fail, and and by the way, you know, we've elected presidents I've wanted and elected presidents I didn't want, but during the time frames that that person was in office, that was the only president I had. And so while I may not have supported all that president's policies, I supported the person because he was the president. And I think that that is also being lost here, is if you don't like the president or don't like his policies, then let's just tear everything apart. Well, there's a good word for that in in political science and history. It's called anarchy. And you can, you know, once, once we start tearing everything apart, I just wonder if there's anybody in in some of these media 
places that can put it back together. The R word, uh, racism, is thrown around a lot today. It just seems to uh, add fuel to the fire. Absolutely, absolutely. There's a we we um, we in this definition, this labeling of people that occurs is embedded in there is almost the ability for you to begin to discriminate if you want, right? You have, you know, Arab Christians. Well, maybe they're okay because they're Christians, right? Or Arab Muslims or, you know, why is it that we have to label people like that? You know, uh, the last big immigration happened at the end of the, the 19th century, right? And, and yet we are still calling people Italians or Polish or German. And I'm sorry, you know, aren't they Americans? But see, this is part of this, this labeling process. If you keep putting enough labels up, you can keep people divided, and then you can keep telling them who's to blame for their problems because they're different. They're not you, right? You know, they go to this church, not that church, right? And, and this is where this language has fed into the victims. And, and even, you know, um, I've written, um, unfortunately, you know, people, that the tobacco companies, you know, I, I feel sorry for them. It's not that I think that they did everything completely on the up and up all these years. But nobody told anybody to put a cigarette in their mouth and light it. You know, the, the cigarette companies did not come and walk up to anybody and say, put this in and light this and smoke it, right? And yet people do not take responsibility for their choice to smoke, and then suddenly they are the victims because now they have an illness and somebody has to pay for that. And I think that this rationale of blaming other people has just permeated our society, especially in the last two decades. Uh, your book is a, I guess what we'd call a short read, it ha but it has a lot of different uh, uh, views, or maybe not views, it's, it's kind of uh, little segments of life, of events, uh, everything from all the assassinations that have occurred in this country and, of course, the war on poverty and on drugs and on terror and Los Angeles riots. Uh, uh, you just picked out events, and why did you, why did you do this? What was the, uh, what was the underlying uh, thinking of the way you put together your book? When I, when I started, I, I began to think of in what I would say more modern era, for the most part, even though I did start with Leo Frank, some of the major events that people perhaps could relate to about the loss of someone who, you know, had potential or was a great leader. And the, I picked out the ones that I thought represented how, especially, you know, I, I have the Kennedys in there, you know, high school you were in typing class and you heard that the president had been shot and then he died and and just that sense of loss we had and the same thing with his brother Bobby right is that you know here was the promise of uh, of something and and their message you know at the time was spot on it was about you know bringing the world back together diplomacy it was about you know caring for each other you know being compassionate and it was a good message. Now, you know, maybe if they'd become, you know, if John had lived and 
Bobby Kennedy had been come president, maybe he wouldn't have fulfilled that to the level that, you know, we had aspirations for them for. But the idea was is they presented us with that hope, that future. Because without hope, nothing happens. I mean, if I, if I don't think I'm going to live today, then what am I going to do? Right? I mean, I'm probably not going to go to work and, you know, you get depressed and all that. But people need hope. And when they have hope, they get ideas. They think innovatively. They think creatively. They, they believe in the future. They plan for the future. They can save for the future, right? Um, they invest in things and houses and cars and relationships. But if everything is gloom and doom and you know, we're all going to die and, and everybody hates us. You know, it's like there used to be a saying when I was a kid is um, nobody loves me, everybody hates me, I guess I'll go outside and eat worms. You know, so this whole, this whole kind of depressing thing occurs where it, and it becomes a feeder into this victimhood and hate because people want to know who to blame. And the problem is is that they're not really looking for what their responsibility or accountability in some of these things are because it's very easy to say, I want to blame them or I want to blame her for their problems. And so um, in bringing out some of the ones I did is, is I wanted to show that, you know, they may, in some cases, they were political figures. In other cases, they were just ordinary citizens, but they weren't, they weren't the bad guys. They weren't you know, they weren't despots, they weren't tyrants, they weren't serial killers, right? These were just people who, for a brief moment in time, you know, some of them were in the spotlight and left us way too soon, and others were, were people who just went about their daily lives and got caught up in something that cost them their lives. And why did that happen? It's because that idea that they were somehow responsible for my problems, so now I have to hurt them. And that's where that victim and hate cycle kicks in. So I've got to break that cycle. The title of the book, A Nation of Haters and Victims, or A Nation of Thinkers, Hopers, and Doers, and you say now is the time to take stock of who we are and who we want to be and to make sure that we are more akin to the thinkers than the haters. Well, Dr. Todd, tell us how to get your book. It's available through um, iUniverse.com. You can order it through there and also through the Barnes & Noble also online ordering system. And uh, it's a short read. One of my goals in this was not to beat people up with all of our, our flaws of the past, but remind people and say, we're better than this. We can move on. We can do it. But we have to do it by not falling into the language and the media of hate and victimhood. Well, thank you. Thank you, Ruth, for being on iUniverse Radio. Thank you. It's been nice talking to you, Steve. That was Dr. Ruth Todd, the author of her book, A Nation of Haters and Victims, or A Nation of Thinkers, Hopers, and Doers iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is produced by TogiNet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.